Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. And a heads up, this episode contains sensitive content that may be upsetting for some listeners. Please read the warning in the show notes before listening to the episode. Well, if you leave, they'll get half of it, so why bother shacking up with anyone? That's basically the end of the episode, and we are talking about family law. Look, it's tough out there in relationship land, enough as it is. Insert a couple of kids, insert some blended families, and you've got a real big mess if it goes south. doesn't always go south, but when it does, you may need some help from a family law specialist. Today on the podcast, I've got Kate and Tanya. They're family law specialists from our preferred legal provider in the My Millennial Money world, Aubrey Brown Lawyers. And lots of you have used Aubrey Brown Lawyers for all your legal things. They've got a big team. They help people all over Australia. And today, we're just answering questions that you've put in the Facebook group around family law. We'll start with BFAs, binding financial agreements, or for the Americans, prenups, and we'll see if we can get into some trouble along the way. Kate, welcome to My Millennial Money. Hi, Glenn. Thanks for having us. Tanya, welcome to My Millennial Money. Thank you. Happy to be here. Are you girls ready to uh, get ready into to it? Ready to rock and roll. All right, let's get it on. Okay, I want to do a bit of a 101. Uh, with Kate and Tanya, just to set the scene, Kate, you specialize in complex property things with family law. What does that mean? Okay, so it's it's kind of the area that I've come to love and specialize in. So dealing with the more complex nature of financial settlements. So when relationships break down and they need their property settlement sorted, what assets are going to be divided, I tend to deal with the more complex um, matters that we get here at Aubrey Brown. So matters involving high net worth, um, different entities, companies, trusts, those kind of things. So that's kind of my jam and the stuff that I like to do. And yeah, the more complex parenting stuff too. Sweet. Tanya, what do you do day on day? What do you love? I think we all dabble in a little bit of everything, but my probably favourite thing to do is the parenting side of things. I cut my teeth on legal aid parenting matters and I just think the whole idea of a parenting matter is the best interest of the child. Every family is different, which means that every matter is different. Yeah. Keeps you on your toes. Awesome. Yeah, sweet. So as you can see, I and, you know, we've just got a heap of questions. It's an informal, casual chat. And if you see me scribbling down... While we're chatting, it's because I'm writing down questions that I want to ask both of you. I'm going to first ask, before the binding financial agreement stuff, do we always need a family lawyer if there is a relationship breakdown? 
You don't need one to sort out what you're going to do. If you two can come up with an agreement about what's best for your kids or what's best for your property side of things, you don't need a lawyer to do that. The part where you do probably need a lawyer to get involved is when you have reached an agreement formalising that by way of consent orders or a BFA. And the reason for that is that the court has very particular requirements about how orders should be drafted. And you just want to make sure that you're not missing anything about your financial circumstances. Right. Because you always hear of separation and, oh, we've spent thousands of dollars with lawyers. Is that one because, you know, you were bloodthirsty for money as lawyers (laughs) or, why are you laughing? It's true. Um, (laughs) Or is it more when it isn't amicable, no one's really talking and we actually need third-party representation? Is that when we see the people spend so much time with lawyers because it isn't amicable? Yes, certainly. Like when things have fallen apart, when there's so much conflict between the parties, there is a a greater need for lawyer involvement and it does take time to reach an agreement. People also aren't always clear on what their financial circumstances are exactly like. So you may end up spending more money just because we're simply going back and forth, doing a bit of an investigation to work out what we've got before we work out where to from here. Because I've had people on this podcast uh, and even the last six months of, you know, this year where they've they've shared their story about separation and it has been amicable and they haven't really had a need for family law specialists. So my question is, if you are in a relationship and it's an amicable separation and there are financial affairs, property shares, cars, kids, all the things... Would it then be wise for that couple to go to the one lawyer just to execute the agreement formally or do we still need to organise a meeting with two separate law firms and the couple to execute or can we both go to the one lawyer to just ratify what we've agreed and sign off? Okay. You definitely both can't come to the same lawyer. We can only ever act for one party in a property or a parenting matter, but you can just have one lawyer drafting all the documents and liaising with the other party who's just going to be a self-repped party. So we can prepare all the documents, then send them to the other side for them to look at. We always encourage that person to get legal advice, but there's no obligation for them to do so, provided it's a consent order. If you're entering into a binding financial agreement, that's different. You're going to need independent legal advice for both parties. Yeah, cool. And that's what I really, because all this is new to me and I've been wanting to do a family law episode for uh, some time now. And just once more, because I'm really dumb and thick and this is not my wheelhouse. (laughs) If I was with somebody, I could say, look, we've got an amicable separation here. What about you go to a lawyer and quote unquote, get the representation, get drawn up what we agreed and I'll just self-represent myself and execute what we've agreed. Is that basically what you were saying? Yeah, Yeah, if they want to do that. Cool. Now, if there's kids involved, do the courts get involved always? No. Okay, cool. Not unless they need to be or not unless you want them to be. If parties are in agreement about what's going to happen with the children, then they can just have a really informal arrangement about what that looks like on a week-to-week basis. You can also consider entering into a parenting plan, which is a little bit more formality in the sense that it's a written document that you both sign, but it's not enforceable in the event somebody doesn't do what they say they're going to do. So you're not technically going to get in trouble or you can get court involvement by way of court orders. Yeah, cool. And we will swing back around to that. I'm just kind of doing a bit of an intro here because I'm just like, I've got all these questions. Um, Awesome. Let's now move on. 
you've mentioned binding financial agreements, BFAs. Are they the prenups? Because it, the way that you were talking there, Tanya, and probably this is one for you, Kate, before I go into a relationship, I might get a BFA. And then at the end of a relationship, are we saying there might be another BFA? Yeah. So a BFA is actually a financial agreement under the Family Law Act, and it can be entered into before you head into a de facto relationship, during the relationship, or after separation. Awesome. Do you think everyone needs a BFA or a prenup before they enter into a long-term relationship or marriage? Um, Absolutely not. So it's definitely something to talk about if people have significant assets that they want to protect, say if someone has received a big inheritance or they think that that's coming, or if one person's coming in with a lot more property, valuable assets than the other party. It's definitely a conversation to have and maybe get some legal advice about. I think the big thing that people need to do is actually have a conversation with one another and actually talk about what do we think this relationship looks like? What are your expectations around money? Who's going to pay for what? And what happens if the proverbial shit hits the fan? And what are we going to do about it? Because that's the problem. People don't talk about it. And I think the big thing people need to do is actually have that conversation. Okay, that's really good because communication's the problem and also the solution a lot of the times, right? Yes. Let's let's take a wild example and we'll assume no kids for this instance. Okay. I'll make a number up. I'm worth ten million dollars, for example. I'm not. Okay. <laughs> I was about to say, okay, yeah. your your coffee shout. <laughs> Everyone like there's a Google search that's like um, a common thing, Glenn James, and then it's like net worth. Did you mean this? So a lot of people, a lot of you want to know my net worth. Uh, I'll tell you exactly what it is. You heard it's it here none first. Of your business. It's none of your business. Um, so if I was worth ten million dollars, could be more, could be less. And then I, you know, met someone and I said, "Oh, why don't you move into my Meriwether Heights abode?" Okay, and we get serious, and then we've been living together for a little while, and. We're like, oh, yeah, this could be a thing long-term, marriage or not, okay? But we've made a commitment that, yeah, you're it forever, quote-unquote. Could I do a binding financial agreement to say, look, there's significant wealth here. If we ever separated, I actually don't want you to be without money as a human level, right? Could I do a BFA and say, look, let's just agree if the crab ever hits the fan because I'm worth $10 million now and a lot of that is tied up in the business because I wouldn't want a divorce or a separation to disrupt the business because people, if I, the business had to be sold or liquidated or whatever, people could lose their jobs and all that stuff. Yeah. Could I say if we ever separate, you can just walk away with a million dollars Absolutely. So, And we agree to that. And this is the caveat, no kids. Yeah. So kids is a really complicating factor exactly. for the prenup style BFAs. And that's what makes them really tricky. And you need to make sure you get really good legal advice for those. But if we're just looking at protecting assets, really common one is you keep what you brought in, I'll keep what I brought in. 
but then they maybe say, if we separate after five years, you might get X, separate after 10 years, a little bit more, separate after 20 years, a little bit more. Awesome, yes. And the fairer that they are, the better chance that you have of them being upheld and not set aside. So if you do make some provision for the other person, it doesn't need to be a million dollars, but if you said, hey, if we're together for a length of time, I recognise you're going to contribute in some way to this property, you might do renovations or pay bills or you might help me look after the pets or Mm. whatever it is that that person's bringing to the table if we separate then after a length of time. And it does need to be a a long time. People have this idea that if you're together for a year or two, it automatically entitles you to half. That's Mm. just not the case. But if there is some provision for the other person, it tends to make the agreement much fairer and then you can have much more certainty that it's going to stay in place and not be set aside. Yeah, because that's like years ago, I'd be like, oh, I'm never doing a BFA because whatever, you know, if you if you leave or I leave, have half or whatever, it's all good. But the more my life goes on and the more complex it is, I've actually got employees and a business. And then if I separated and someone did challenge me for half of that, it could actually mean that I've got to close the business and people could lose their jobs. Now, I know you might be thinking, oh, shut up, Glenn. But these are real world examples and it could be other people might be older when they enter a relationship and have significant wealth and they want to stop crazy from coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, it's really it's really common for second relationships. Yeah. So people that have been burnt the first time around, they're like, hang on, I know exactly what I don't want to happen this time. Mm. I've been through that really drawn out negotiation or litigation phase. It just gives you peace of mind. It's an insurance policy to say, if we do separate, and that's the thing, they only come into effect if you separate. Mm. You might not, you might live happily ever after and it just stays tucked away in the bottom drawer as your insurance policy. But if you do separate, you know exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen and it just gives you peace of mind that you can focus on the other parts of the relationship and not what's going to happen with the financial side of things if we Yeah. So they're a completely customizable document and would you say the other party would obviously get their own representation? They have to. So it's a legal requirement that both parties have to be independently legally represented and get independent legal advice. They're really complicated documents. They can certainly be done and we do them, but it's really important that they're done properly. Otherwise, they're just not worth the paper they're written on. So a proper prenup, I just like using that word because it's (laughs) so clickbaity, a proper prenup that's executed with both parties absolutely agreeing Ex, both parties having representation. Can we self-represent like the example with Tanya? No. no so, okay. both parties do need to so have their own That's a stitch up for the legal community. Okay. Um, no worries. Um, well, because it. it's our butts on the line. That's right. So If it goes pear-shaped. If there was a perfectly executed document, everyone agreed, it was sanctified, glorified, you know, holy water sprinkled on it, signatures, the best textbook case and I'm talking without kids involved, even when it does get pulled out of the drawer, what are the actual strike rates anecdotally of that getting challenged and then thrown out in court? Do you have any anecdotes? I mean, there's quite a few in recent times where they have been challenged, but a lot of them are where there have been children. Um, One of the big ones... That's why I stipulated (laughs) without children because... One no. of the biggest cases that we had is a case called Thorne and Kennedy, and it was basically a millionaire 
or billionaire man marrying a much younger woman and she was coming to Australia to marry him and the wedding was too close in time to when the financial agreement was being entered into. So there was all issues about her being under this enormous pressure because her family was coming out, she was under pressure to enter into this agreement and it was all rushed and so it was looking at whether it was fair in terms of the negotiation process leading up to it. Mm. So it has to be each person entering into the agreement freely, voluntarily and without pressure. So you can't say, I'm not going to marry you next week if you don't sign this financial agreement. We just don't do them that close to those kind of big events or they they risk being set aside. Sure, okay. But on the facts that you gave me, as long as each person has the time to properly negotiate, make inquiries about the other person's financial circumstances, get independent legal advice, and we tick all the boxes in terms of the legislative requirements that we have to do, they get legal advice, then you've got a pretty good chance of it holding up as long as there hasn't been significant non-disclosure or those other issues around you know, undue influence or duress. Yeah. And I think, you know, before we move on to the next part and we might talk about kids, the examples I used, they were like extreme examples. I will say between you and your partner, if you both decide to do a BFA and you have representation either side, it's no one else's business what you both decide. If you both go into it with no duress and all that stuff, it's just... And if you tell your friends that, oh, we just did this and they whinge, uh-uh, none of their business because it's your life, your money with your partner. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I like the the staging of like if we're together five years, this happens or 10 years because if there was somebody who was a legitimate um, multimillionaire running the world business owner and, you know, she was out there and CEO of this big company and maybe the husband stayed at home to care for the house and maybe the kids or whatnot, well, that husband being a stay-at-home dad has actually enabled her to go and make it rain more. Yeah, that's exactly right. It would be very rare, particularly in a long-term partnership, for one party to not contribute in some way. So the contributions that we look at in a family law context are obviously financial contributions. So what are you bringing to the table in terms of what property do you have or what money are you putting towards things? But we also look at the non-financial contributions like renovating property, doing paperwork for the other person's business, Mm. even things like marketing and socialising, going to events to support that person's business. And then the other... Um, big ones are looking after kids that may or may not be your own kids mm. and also housework, cleaning, gardening, cooking, those kind of things. Yep. Question for Tanya. If there was a BFA entered into, couple uh, got together a year later, they're like, yeah, we want to make this a fish baby. We're doing this. Let's get a BFA. We've both got our own assets and we just want to make sure that there's, you know, if it does go south, that we're both protected. If kids entered the relationship, would you say that's probably a good time to come up for air and renegotiate what that BFA is when there's a change of situation? Or should I get Kate to answer that? Kate's our BFA guru. All right, go Kate. Um. If, and it's something that I have to, I get really up close and personal with my family law clients and I have to ask them all kinds of things, including are kids on the horizon? Mm. Do you plan on having kids? And if the answer is yes, I do have some hesitation around doing a financial agreement because you just don't know what the 
um, circumstances will look like or what the kids' needs might be. If there are already children in place, it's okay. You can provide for that. But I'm a little bit hesitant to do it. We do do it, but it's just a little bit more complicated. But you'd certainly be reassessing if there was one already entered into and kids came along. Yeah, and that's that's what I would think. Like, because, you know, after this episode, we're going to record one about wills and estate planning. Any huge life-changing events, that's when you need to come up for air and review documents that are in place. Absolutely. So, I mean, the thing to keep in mind, though, with a financial agreement is it's intended to be binding, you know, forever. Um, Unless you both agree that we recreate it and replace it. That's right. So, if both of you agree to terminate the existing financial agreement, then absolutely you can do that. But I guess the problem is if one person then wants to try and challenge it, say if someone receives an inheritance or a lotto win or some other kind of windfall during the course of the BFA and one person goes, hang on, I want to set this aside now because it's not fair. You might have some difficulties if it has been done properly Mm. because they are intended to remain in place Mm. regardless of changes in circumstances. And a a binding financial agreement would end and or be executed if there is a relationship breakdown or death. So it ends at death and then the will and the estate plan kicks in. Is that correct? So the difference with a financial agreement is that it can be binding on the estate um, Mm. of the person who dies. So it's really important to get some cross-referenced advice with the family law and the estate planning team. And we kind of, we we often do them as like a package deal. So you're looking at a deed of release with what happens about claiming on the estate of the other person simultaneously with the financial agreement. But that's definitely something that EPT Mm. Can talk, That's cool talk to because you more if, about. You, if you did have uh, some complex circumstances and you did want to look at this stuff, yeah, have the estate planning team, have the family law peeps, you know, have Kate and have Angela who will be on next episode in the room. Let's all chat it out. And yeah, it's just, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, it's definitely something that we look at holistically and say, if this is what you want to try and achieve and protect your property in the event of separation and or death, then it's something that we can do, but you might just need a couple of documents to do it properly. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back right after this because I want to talk about kids and court and then we'll just spend the last half hour answering all your questions. So we'll be back after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, we are back. Now, it sounds to me that BFAs, they're pretty chill if there's no kids involved and they're all being entered into and they're not done at the altar and all that. Now, things can get tricky when kids enter the world in many ways. So, Tanya... BFA aside, if there is a relationship and there's a separation and there are kids involved and it isn't amicable, that's when you really come in and help one of the sides that you represent, either negotiate or if there's no negotiation, then we go to court for the court to decide. Is that a fair statement? Not straight away, no. no. So, if we can't get there by just simple conversations with the other side, what normally has to happen is that parties are required by the court to attend mediation. Right. So they have to make a genuine attempt to try and resolve the matter prior to commencing proceedings. So you can do that with the assistance of a lawyer or without, and that you can do that through a private mediator or through places like Relationships Australia or Interrelate. So we'll go through that process. In the event you unfortunately, you go through that and you can't reach an agreement, then we go down the avenue of court proceedings. So that's much like when I was suing my neighbour about their barking dog. They were like, you've got to go to mediation before court. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't, you don't have to comment on that. <laughs> that's one for if, you were, if you've been to one of our live events or if you see me in public, ask me about that. But um, I think it's because we all have two dog. dogs each in this office. I was like, why are you picking on the dog? Okay, this was a long... It's a dog office. This, yeah, I love dogs. But when the dogs barked nonstop for five years and you've tried to go to the owner several times and they've done nothing about it, when you get... And the dogs weren't suited for the yard. Like, they were collies and just nonstop barking. When you get petitions signed by all the neighbours for them to actually at least walk the dogs, when they're locked up all day, it was borderline abuse. Okay, that's... Yeah, fair issue with that. (laughs) Yeah, and I went RSPCA... They weren't that helpful, sadly, in this instance. Council sent a ranger out twice randomly and they said, oh, there's nothing going on here. I showed the owner videos of the dog barking and I said, look, I'm putting a noise suppression thing through court or whatever it is. Anyway, long story. They said, before you go to court, you've got to go to mediation. And the neighbour didn't want to do mediation. So we went the long way. We went the, we went the hard way. <laughs> Anyway, we might edit that out, uh, <laughs> but we probably won't because, you know, the second half of the podcast, if you already hate me, you're not listening unless you're listening for a got you moment. So whatever, you don't have to listen to this crap, but let's, okay. I don't know where we were, but court, if mediation is successful, no court needed. Exactly. If mediation is successful, then you can enter into either a parenting plan, which like I said earlier, is just a a written agreement between you two, or you can enter into consent orders, which is formal orders of the court that really are quite, not rigid is probably a bad word, but really set out all the requirements of each of the parents in relation to the children. And the order that you've agreed to without court, is there any governance of that or is it registered with a, a state or federal body or anything like that? Or is it just up to one of the parents if something is not happening right that they need to then bring it back to the attention of the other partner to address if it's three years down the down the track? 
So if parties enter into orders, that gets filed with the court. You don't have to attend court for those orders to be made. But if orders are made and things fall apart and they're not working and one party isn't standing up and doing what they said that they were going to do under those orders, then the other party can take the matter to court. Right. Okay. So if the mediation was successful before court and you didn't have to submit anything to court, we just have an agreement between the two partners? Well, you can do it both ways. So you can have your written agreement that's not filed with the court. It's a written agreement that shows the intention of the parties and that's called a parenting plan. Yes, sorry. So yeah. the pen- the parenting plan, is that filed in any government no, place? No, Okay, that's what I'm that's kind just of getting a, at. Yeah, that's just a document yep. that you both keep. And you both refer back to. Yeah, cool. And thanks everyone for your grace with me actually learning all this stuff on the fly because I just haven't really had the experience in this corner of the world. And that's why we have Tanya and Kate helping us. The parenting agreement, if it all goes well, does that agreement, what does that cover? Is it just visitation? Is it money? Is it time spent? What's the deal with that parenting plan? So for parenting orders or a parenting plan, it's going to cover who the children shall live with, um, what time they'll spend with the other party, what's what time the children are going to spend with each of the parents, special occasions, communication like FaceTime. It also covers a parent's right to attend certain activities, medical authorities, things like that. So it covers a broad range of things, but it doesn't touch on child support. That's a separate family law issue. Okay. Child support. How, how does that work if you're telling me who doesn't know anything about it? Mm-hmm. Can you give me a conceptual overview and maybe use an example of a, a relationship with two kids and maybe there is one person working part-time and doing some home duties and one person working full-time? Okay. So there's a couple of different ways that you can sort it out. You can either just have a informal private agreement between you two where you you simply agree on what's going to occur, who's going to pay what. And that's off the basis of who's having majority care of the kids and just what the arrangements are. You can also get a formal child support assessment through the agency. And you can also go onto their website and use their assessment calculator to get a good idea of what that what that's going to look like for your circumstances. Their assessments, it's quite a technical formula and I don't pretend to understand all the mechanics behind it, but essentially it's nights of care of the children, how many children there are, the ages, the incomes of both the parties. Like, There's many things that go into how much child support is appropriate in the circumstances. And the child support, there are some questions that we'll get to, but if someone, and, and this is the whole thing, like, if it's amicable, it's going to be easier for everyone involved. Kids, the two people, and someone like yourself who's just maybe executing an agreement. But if it is south and it does have if it goes south and it does have to go to court, will then the court look at those formulas and actually make a ruling on how much needs to be paid by well, a party and for how long? The other thing that parties can do, and sometimes it's a really good thing to do before things go south, is to enter into, if you don't want to get the child support agency assessment, you can also enter into a binding child support agreement. Um, Similar to the BFAs that we were talking about before, you have to have independent legal advice, but it means it's a bit more flexible in that you can really look at your circumstances, determine what's appropriate, look at things like your normal periodic child support, so your day-to-day child support, but also your non-periodic things like your medical expenses, certain activities that the children are going to be participating in. So they can be a really good avenue for sorting out what's going to happen with the kids prior to anything going south between you two. 
there's a just let's transition to some of these questions. And this is probably for you, Tanya. Jack Palmer says, are there any legal requirements for what child support can be spent on? Or is it the case that once it's um, with the caregiving parent or whoever's receiving it, they can do what they want with it? Well, look, there's an idea that child support is for certain things like food, education, medical expenses, clothing, etc. But once you receive that child support, it's a matter for you how you spend it. But just bearing in mind that you're then going to have to, if you spend it on yourself, you're going to still have to come up with your money mm. to pay for those expenses for the children. Yeah, it's. I, I always share this story. I've got a friend of mine. He separated from his wife. They were both well-to-do, quote-unquote, or good incomes, uh, good money behind them after, you know, their careers and whatnot. And they're still under 40, I think. And they separated two kids. They basically agreed with themselves that with the time that the kids were with each other, and he was actually paying um, his ex-wife an amount each week. And it got to the point where, and I think she was actually a lawyer, she said to him, hey, mate, just, I don't need your money anymore. Like, I, I don't want to feel guilty going on holidays and you're paying me X amount a week. So, they just decided they'll set up a joint bank account and just put money in there for school fees and anything to do for the school fees. And then that was it. So, by the book and by the calculation, it may have meant that, quote unquote, he was paying less than what he should have, but they had an agreement that because they, she was now you know, kids were back in school, she was really starting to make an income, she owned the house and all that, that on a moral or ethical lens in her view that she didn't want money from him just because. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I don't know, I'm just saying that was a way that it happened. Like, were there and do you, know you what? shoot I think- holes in that or is, <laughs> well, am I, I paraphrasing really terribly? No, I was just going to say that's great, but I just feel like a lot of parties actually can't get to a place where they can yeah. do that and where they have the trust in the other party to do it. Mm. And so I'm not saying that you always need to go down the avenue of binding child support agreement and engage lawyers, but I think oftentimes you do need a little bit of guidance and support about what's appropriate. Has it ever got to the stage where child support is due and there's a scumbag and the court actually tells their employer that you need to pay X amount into an external bank account? Like, will they go that hard and garnish salary at the source? The child support agency will garnish salaries Yeah. if if people aren't living up to their um, requirements under a child support assessment, then they can garnish their salaries. Mm. Do you feel in Australia at the moment, because we are in New South Wales and- can you just remind me, the stuff that we're talking about, it is federal, it's not state-based? That's correct. Well, family law is a federal jurisdiction. Yeah, cool. So, if anyone needed some help anywhere in Australia with family law and they're like, oh, Tanya, you sound like, you know, what you're on about, could they contact you? Yeah, they can. Western Australia is dealt a little bit differently, but for the other states, then we all fall under the, the Family Law Act. Yeah, that's cool. So, having said all that, like it's a, it's a national system how confident are you working with that national system week on week that it is a good, smooth process? I'm not naive enough to think that the system is perfect, but yeah. I think there's been a lot of changes over the last decade or more to make it work as best as possible. It's it's never going to be perfect, but the courts made a lot of changes. There's a real focus on alternative dispute resolutions, um, a real focus in the legislation on it being about contributions of parties in terms of property matters, et cetera. And 
as best they can, they try and make it adaptable to everybody's individual circumstances. Mm. Yeah, I just think that the system has come a hell of a long way. Even changes were made in September of last year to try and improve things, to try and move families through the system a lot quicker. There's now a focus on trying to get you in and out of court if you actually have to go to court within 12 months. Again, it might not always be in 12 months, but at least there's a real focus on trying to do that because nobody wants to be in court. It's not enjoyable. It's expensive. So the sooner you can get out, the better. Yeah, sweet. Uh, Kate, there's an anonymous question here, lots of anonymous questions. What's the best way to protect your assets in case you accidentally marry a very good con artist that wants to take half of your assets? (laughs) I love the accidental marrying part. So, like we talked about before, the absolute best way to protect yourself either heading into or during a relationship is to do a financial agreement, which says what's going to happen in the event of a breakdown of that marriage or relationship. Um, that's the highest level of protection that we can offer. But then stepping down from that, um, I think just making sure that you have good communications, have some good financial education. So actually understand how things like joint bank accounts and redraw facilities work, Can the other person just take money? What happens if, you know, the other person says they're going to pay bills and doesn't and have an understanding of how the money works and keep records of Mm. the big transactions? So if you're paying a lot of money into someone else's, you know, property or you're buying big things, keep records of it and keep it in a a special folder. I heard a story of someone uh, getting a separation and divorce and when it was all rocky, um, this person said oh, I just withdrew 20 grand out of our bank account and kept it in cash and quote unquote just spent it because it's my money too. And then it was like off the record for all the settlement stuff. Like, is there any protection for that type of dickery? So we do have ways that we can kind of claw back money that's been wasted. So there are cases which tell us that if a person's been reckless or they've, you know, things like gambling or they've spent money on drugs, alcohol, prostitutes, you know, this this kind of thing. Yeah, this is cool because, and I say that because I don't think you should be a scumbag in general, you know, even if you are separating like... I'm sure emotions get in the way, but just don't be a scumbag. So what you're saying is if someone was like, well, I'm taking 20 grand out of the account and just quote unquote spending it, it's my money, they'll never know. There could be a case that that 20,000 could come off a property settlement because that was so irregular and irrational and you can't explain what happened to it. So there could be an argument that that could actually come out in the wash. Yeah. So in some, I mean, it's limited cases where you can add it back, but we call it a notional add back. So we say, well, hey, you've already had the benefit of having that $20,000. So that's going to come off what you would otherwise have received. And this is so important. Like I just wanted to do this episode as a bit of a, you know, toe in the water and a bit of a, you know, get you thinking if you are entering into relationships, just some of the things you need to think about. And like personal finance, everything is so nuanced. And, you know, we're going to ask some of these more, you know, anonymous questions. You can only give some general, you know, throw a blanket over it because we don't know the situation, right? So, this is all grain of salt stuff. Yeah. And let's, let's do another one here. Leanne says, if you leave, they get half. I often hear this and just want to know, is it true without a prenup? Also, are there financial benefits to getting married or is it just a <laughs> fancy party? So... Yeah, take what you will with that one, Tanya. Do we always divide things in half? I think that's one of the greatest misconceptions. I meet with a lot of people that say to me that 
you know, he or she is going to walk away with half and I brought it all in or we've got kids and I'm going to have make the majority care. So therefore suddenly I've got, you know, I'm going to get walk away with 70% of the asset pool. That's just not true. We work within basically a, a range of results that's likely to occur in certain circumstances, but each property matter is determined based on its individual facts. That's why what you contributed, both financial and non-financial, what you did in terms of parenting and homemaker duties, what your needs are for the future. So whether you've got health issues, what your income is like, et cetera, those things all play into who's going to get what. So there's no hard and fast rules about, we, you know, we're just going to mm. split it and walk away. Yeah. And what about superannuation? Is that an automatic forms part of the pool or- yep. So super forms part of the property pool. It doesn't mean, again, I also meet with a lot of people that say, I don't want to give that person part of my super. You don't have to. We're looking at an overall asset pool. It certainly forms part of it, but it doesn't mean that you have to do a super split if that's not Mm. appropriate for your circumstances. Also, but it can form part of the agreement because it might be that somebody decides to give up some of their super so that they can maintain more of the cash assets at this point in time. So it really is, we can- tailor, as long as everybody's on board, we can tailor the agreement to what's actually going to suit your circumstances. Mm. And even with the assets and the kids, as long as it's a an agreed thing, that's the end of the story, isn't it? If everyone agrees, but it's not the end of the story. So <laughs> jump in, Kate. There has to be yeah. a caveat on that. So if we're doing court orders and you're submitting it to the court, it's done on the papers, but the court still has to review the documents and make a determination about whether the property settlement is just and equitable. So oh, okay, you have yeah. to fill in information and say, this person contributed this, like who made the greater contributions? Does anyone have any future needs that need to be taken into account? So you still have to show that it's fair, that it's just and equitable, and the court still has the power to come back and say, hang on a second, you're proposing this is a 50-50 split. We don't agree. We want some more information. Can you give it to us? And that's why it's a good idea to get some legal advice, even when you, you've got agreement, to make sure that when you submit those forms to the court, they're not going to send them back and say, this doesn't fall within the range. So I'm confused you say we're, we agreed something and it goes to the court to ratify, quote unquote, ish. Yes. I thought it only goes to court if it isn't amicable. Okay. So with a consent order, yep. it's still just all just done on the paperwork. So you come to an agreement with your property or your parenting or both. Yep. You can do your consent orders. Oh. It's done on the papers, yep. but the power still rests with the court to decide whether or not they stamp mm. those documents or not. They don't just rubber stamp them. Sure. It has to still be fair. What's the time to like how long does it take so to go through court? Now they've got a goal to have consent orders stamped, provided there's no issue with them within four weeks of them being filed with the court. Mm. And we are seeing a much faster turnaround. I had a matter at the beginning of the year that took 16 weeks for the orders to be made, which was an extraordinarily long time, but now they're being turned around much faster. Mm. There's another anonymous question here. How do family financial disputes work across international borders or don't they? It's And this person acknowledges that it's a fairly broad question. It's very broad and quite complex. So we, we've started having to work with lawyers in lots of different countries because as globalisation takes over and people are travelling, they fall in love, they might have a baby. Um, 
you have to be really aware of what the laws are for that particular country and what mm. laws might apply to you in those circumstances. So if we're dealing with a property settlement, we're, we're going to look at things like where is the property held? Where is the income being produced? How can we enforce it? So in Australia, we can have orders that apply to the parties and their property in Australia. It can reference property overseas, but our ability to enforce that is really limited. So we, we really only have control over property in this country by mm. way of enforcement. So if you're looking if they've got property here and overseas, you might have to work with lawyers in that jurisdiction to make sure that they're properly covered and it can be enforced. But sometimes it's a question of looking around as to what jurisdiction is going to be appropriate because some have benefits such as like spouse maintenance or alimony, those kind of types of payments that other jurisdictions don't. And you want to make sure that you're giving clients the best opportunity to get the best settlement. So they would need to look at which country, what their laws are, what's the best fit. But generally, it's where the property is, you would do the settlement there. Mm. You talked about love in that, when you fall in love. Um, (laughs) We forget about love. (laughs) So what is that? What is love? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no. I just thought of that song. What yeah. Baby, don't hurt um, me. <laughs> there's an anonymous question here. If my de facto partner moves in with me, are they able to make a claim on my property? Would this change if they own their own property? If we had children, length of time, if they paid rent, how would you protect yourself from this happening? All that to say, my question is, at what point is the clear indication, whether it's time or actions, where it doesn't matter if you're married through the birth, death and marriages office or you're my parents and you've never been married. Like at what point does it not matter if you're married or not and then serious claims can be made? Okay, so under the Family Law Act, there's no distinction between a de facto matter and a property matter in terms of the entitlement, but there is in terms of being able to prove it. Obviously, if you're married, you've got a marriage certificate. It's really easy. Being able to prove you're in a de facto relationship can be trickier. And we've got a few cases at the moment where we're, you know, looking at for and against. And just on that, when you say property, everyone, Kate doesn't always mean house and land and actual real property, do you? No. So, we're talk- when I say property, we're talking about all of your assets, bank accounts, superannuation, shares, cars, boats, caravans, businesses, mm that falls under property. So we're looking at financial settlement. But generally for a de facto matter, you're looking at people that have been living together for at least two years before you would even have the jurisdiction to seek, you know, a property or financial settlement. But even if it's been two years, you still need to have some kind of contribution to the property of the other pet person, it's not enough that you just live together. You actually need to be making contributions. So generally, the longer that you're in a relationship with that person, the greater risk that they will have an entitlement or kids. Yes. Okay. (laughs) That's good. So that's just a good line in the sand. If I, you know, had my house and I invited someone to move in with me, in my mind, around that two-year period, I've got to think, is this a goer or not? Or do I need to go and see Kate and get a BFA done? Exactly. Yes. Yes. And that's what we need to get at. Like, I think, you know, I used to say 18 months. If you shacked up with someone for 18 months, you're in the danger zone. But we're saying probably closer to two years where you really need to, you know, make sure that you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, so there there are some exceptions. If you were together for 18 months and the other person put a million dollars into your property, then obviously, you know, you might be able to get around that. But generally, two-year minimum plus from there making significant contributions Mm. to the assets of the other person. Yeah. 
Look, we've talked about a lot of stuff. There's a question here from Shiloh. I wanted to leave something to my partner's children. Is there a best option just to have it in trust for them? Look, that's an estate planning question. We'll ask that next episode. Um, but just on that, a last one for Kate, for your final comments. If I've got a discretionary family trust and I'm in a relationship, does that mean all my assets are hidden? No. Ah. <laughs> People hate me because they're like, <laughs> yes, me and my accountant, we've got a, we've got a family trust and they're never going to get it. And it's like, well, unfortunately, the family court has very broad powers yeah. to, you know, pierce They'll that corporate veil. veil and, yeah. and, and so what you're looking at is who's got control of the trust, mm. uh, who's the appointor, who's the trustee, which in general terms is basically who set it up and who's got control to decide where the money goes and who's going to get it and who's a beneficiary. And if you're all of those things, then yes, you have control of that and it's likely that, you know, the assets of that will form part of the settlement. Mm. Um, if the intention of the person is to try and put assets outside of reach of the other person who has a legitimate family law claim, That'd you're probably back, not going to be able to do it. Yeah. So we generally say if that's your intention to try and put things out of reach through doing trusts and things like that, generally you you probably won't be able to because the reach of the family court is so Well, but it's like, uh, you know, superannuation's protected under bankruptcy, but if I moved 300 grand into my super today and then tomorrow I was bankrupt, they'll just claw that back out. Yeah, absolutely. So, yep. Um do you have any final words, Kate? And then I'll ask you, uh, Tanya, for some final words. I think it comes back to communication for me. And I think what we tend to see at this end is just a complete lack of communication between parties that have been in the relationship. And that's when things really go south. And I think if you're just having those conversations earlier about what do we both want? What are we both expecting in terms of money? And what would happen if this happened and what would your reaction be if you were having those really basic conversations and opening up the lines of communication? I think it would stop a lot of the problems and people might not need us as much as as they do. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Do you have any final comments, Tanya? I just think in all areas of life, information is power. So getting proper advice, I mean, talk to your friends in that, but also just getting proper advice from people who are in the trenches doing this day to day is really, really helpful so that you know where you stand. You don't have to follow it, but at least you've got that information, you know the process, you know what is likely to occur in the event that you actually need to engage a solicitor to act on your behalf. And just a final question, and it's just more of a practical thing if I can be real and do some real talk. Real talk with Glennie J coming at you. If there was someone listening and they were in a relationship with kids and they had this feeling that, you know, this, we've been to counselling and I think this is actually on the rocks. Could they reach out to you, Tanya, for example, and we'll put a link in the show notes if you want to go to, you know, connect with Aubrey Brown or whatnot. Could they just reach out with you and just ask the question, get a bit of the lay of the land. This is the situation. I think it is going to go south and I don't think it will be amicable. I don't know yet. Like, can you let them know a bit of a process about, okay, well, you would actually need me at this marker here and then we would, you know, is that a fair thing to do just to, if someone was in a situation where it was about to 
explode? I actually meet with a lot of people who are still in relationships. Obviously, that there are problems there and they're just trying to find out what is likely to occur in the event that they do decide to separate. And we may not see them again for months and months and that's fabulous if things have turned around, but they're just in those stages wanting to get information and we can work with them on that. We can talk about what the process is, what it looks like, what the legislative pathway is, um, what things we're going to consider in terms of contributions and future needs, what documents that we'd want to see in the event that you do have to come back to us. And we can do all that while you're still in a relationship. And also with parenting as well, we can look at what that could possibly look like. Sometimes it's a little bit hard because we're working with a lot of unknowns, but people can get a lot out of those conversations and walk away feeling empowered that they at least know where they stand. And that's the whole thing. Like, I just want these episodes just to be a bit of a toe in the water. Uh, One, we are creating entertainment and that's why I'd be a bit dramatic with my examples. But two, in all seriousness, you know, you're not alone. And if it feels like you're alone, well, you're not. You can just reach out, have a confidential discussion with Tanya and, you know, and or Kate and just see what the lay of the land is. Yep. And I think also sometimes I get people coming in that they've heard these myths either about what they're entitled to or the fact that their partner is saying, if you leave me, you're going to walk away with nothing because the house is in my name or things like that. And so it's just giving them a little bit of peace of mind that things will be okay, that there's avenues, like the court understands these arrangements occur and that there's avenues for us to deal with it and to help you come out with a result that ultimately is just and equitable. Yeah, cool. Final words, Kate? The only thing that I was going to say is it's completely confidential. Yeah. And um, so it can be the best time to get advice before you separate, Mm. especially from a financial perspective, because sometimes when people separate, they put things in place and it's really hard to unravel. But if they come in before, it's actually, I would say, the best time to get that advice Mm. because they just sometimes haven't turned their mind to things that that could happen. So I think if you're looking for that peace of mind or wanting to know how it works and how the practicalities can play out, that would that would probably be my advice is just get get some advice about what might happen confidentially and then you might not ever use it, but at least you've got the peace of mind to know what could happen. Yeah, information is power. Uh, Kate and Tanya, Aubrey Brown lawyers, we'll put a link in the show note. They're a great firm. They've helped plenty of listeners with a heap of stuff. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank Thank you for having us. It was fun. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.